0: If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us, that you would shape our hearts and shape our minds and our lives by your word we thank you father for your spirit which indwells all of your people and we ask lord that again as we focus on the word that your spirit will use the word to minister to us to encourage us to strengthen us and again to continue to transform us to be more and more like your son jesus christ we do thank you we do ask these things in christ's name amen second corinthians 5 beginning in verse 17 therefore God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, in verse 17, when he says, therefore, and I think the New American Standard and some of the others have now, therefore, again, what he's doing here is is he is continuing to develop the same thought that he has begun with earlier. That is basically the redemptive work that Christ has done to help and transform men. again, it's from God. Men neither deserve this, nor do we share in the credit for the results. Christ does not do it apart from God's direction and action. God did it all through Christ. Again, verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we're going to be focusing on the word reconciled, reconciliation, and then begin to touch on the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to all of us as believers. In the book of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 10, it reads, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Cranfield comments on Paul's change from this term in Romans, from justification to reconciliation in the various preceding passages. And he notices, and he notes this. He says, justification is a judicial term that's used in the law courts. A judge may acquit an accused person without ever entering into any personal relationship with the him or her. He just announces the verdict, not guilty. The accused hardly expects to be invited over for dinner by the judge and probably hopes that he would never see him again. But in reconciliation, it is, in fact, as if the judge enters into a personal relationship with the justified sinner, who is now, as it were, invited over to dinner. So again, we get that very personal application, understanding of salvation, That yes, that God has justified us. He has declared us not guilty. Remember, it is not that we are innocent because we are guilty of sinning and rebelling against God. But the penalty has been paid through Christ. It's been paid in full. So we are then declared to be justified. We have been made just in that sense in the eyes of God. But again, as he mentioned here in this definition, it's not just this cold legal transaction that takes place. You are now justified. Go live your life the way you want. It's very different. The idea really is now all this is done so we can be reconciled to him. He wants to have this relationship. He wants to have us over for dinner. All illustrations probably break down, but if if you were a judge... And your son or your daughter comes before you want to say that it's a traffic violation and there's some huge fine and so you you know you they're they're guilty and then basically as a judge you kind of pause the uh proceedings you get down off the bench you take off your robe you then go to the cashier you pay the entire fine then you come back put on your judicial robes again, get back to the front, and then you declare that the individual now can go free because they've been justified, we would expect you then afterwards to say, oh, by the way, son, are you coming over for dinner? Because there's that relationship. Now, that would be expected because that's his son. But if it's a stranger, why would he do that? And then if you begin to understand the seriousness of our sin. The idea that we have knowingly rebelled against God, that there was this, really there was this hatred. And that as God justifies us, he now wants us over for, for dinner. He wants to have this relationship with us. And remember that in, in what we would call biblical times, it was a big deal to have someone over for dinner. It wasn't like now you just might meet somebody and say, oh, I'd just like to get to know you better, come over for dinner. You know, this was where there was a, a welcoming and almost a display that you and this individual were kind of on the same page. That there was an intimacy that is there, a full-fledged friendship that was there. Remember that uh, in all of this, as we read through this, that God reconciled us to himself. So as one said, it is this, man is reconciled to God. God is not reconciled to man. Now that is an important distinction, because in the world in which we live in, even though many understands, many people understand the importance of words, you'll find that when it comes to religious sayings, especially Christianity, you'll find normally those who are not believers very willy-nilly just kind of throwing out phrases and saying things that this is what Christianity says or this is what Christianity represents. And either they're doing it in ignorance or they are purposely trying to change the message. And there's this idea that basically God needs to be reconciled to us. They may not use the word that he needs to be, but what's at times implied is, oh yeah, well I'm reconciled to God and he's reconciled to me. As if God had somehow offended us and needed to be reconciled to us. Remember that there are those who do believe, they've been influenced by secular thought, that God's idea of judging those who have sinned, and punishing those who have sinned is, is almost viewed as being an adolescent idea. That that only the immature think that way. And that somehow God either is or should be above that. And so if we are proclaiming God or displaying God to be like that, you know, there needs to be kind of a repentance among Christians for pushing that idea or a concept in the world. And that really is it's a two way street. We're always happier to share the blame. And if we can share the blame with God, even the better. It makes us feel maybe a little better about ourselves. You know, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to meet God halfway. Is this somehow you've done something spectacular? Remember, there's, there's no meeting God halfway. That is an impossibility. You know, the overused illustration is still true. No matter how great of a swimmer you are, you can leave California, dive into the ocean to swim to Hawaii. You're not going to make it. No matter how well you swim, even if you could set a world record and swim 200 miles on your own. You've got thousands to go. You're not going to make it. There's, there's no meeting halfway. And so what God has done for us is he has reconciled us to himself. And he has done it by himself. The word reconciliation is important because the word reconciliation assumes something. Reconciliation assumes that a relationship has been ruptured. In other words, that's why there needs to be a reconciliation. There's been an alienation. There's been disaffection. People talk about wanting to be reconciled with their parents or wanting to be reconciled with maybe their children. That's because something has ruptured that relationship. And we know that's what the Christian message is about, is the relationship that man had with God in the garden before the fall was one of fellowship. That was destroyed. That was ruptured by man's sin. So we need to be reconciled. That's the problem. The problem is not with God. It is not as if God were some cruel taskmaster from whom we rebelled. Our sinfulness created the problem. And this sinful condition had to be dealt with before there could be any reconciliation. So remember that even reconciliation for the believer, what we understand, this was not just God then one day waking up and saying, you know what, I've held a grudge long enough. It was such a long time ago. It's all right. He can't do that because he's just. He is perfectly just. We really do have a hard time grasping that, but when you begin to boil it down to certain kinds of crimes that most individuals would say are egregious, and you cannot just look the other way, even if it was years ago. We normally think of crimes against children. No judge ever says to an individual who, let's say, abused kids in a preschool 30 years ago. No judge would ever say, you know, I mean, it's been 30 years. How those kids have grown up. I mean, what have they had to deal with, they've dealt with? So Yeah, just let the guy go. That judge would have to hire protection 24 hours a day, and his job would be in jeopardy in some way, Because almost everyone, maybe everyone, would be on board with the idea that that was wrong. So we have to think in terms then of our sin against God as being egregious in that sense. So we're not saying that we are all pedophiles. But what we are saying is, is that our sin is of such a serious nature. It is equal to that by degree. And so therefore reconciliation is the only way. And of course God has done that for us. Reconciliation, again, is not something that man does. It is something that we receive. It is not what we accomplish. It is what we embrace. Reconciliation does not happen when a man decides to stop rejecting God and when God decides to stop rejecting man. It is a divine provision by which God's holy displeasure against alienated sinners is appeased. His hostility against them is removed and a harmonious relationship between him and them is established. Reconciliation occurs because God was graciously willing to design a way to have the sins of those who are his removed from them as far as the east is from the west. That's why we continue to believe and to declare that this is the most important message that is out there. We don't always sense this, I think, but we do need to think think on this and recognize that it is. Remember that this life is not all there is. Life really does continue for all of eternity. This message, believing this message, determines where we are going to be for all of eternity. In case you are unsure, that's a really long time. And and that's really going to take place. And so that, that makes it the most important message. We all are aware of this idea that you can't take your riches with you when you, know, when you die and all of that, uh, because, and it has no effect, in a sense, on the afterlife. But this does. This is the singular thing. And God, as it says here, has given to you and I this ministry. Even though Paul is speaking of himself, maybe of, his, of the other apostles, it is implied here that this is what every single believer has been called to. God has given to you and I this ministry. It is a, it's not a ministry to help, to help people do better so they can be reconciled. It is a ministry where we deliver and explain this message to others. It is a gift. It is a stewardship or a responsibility that we have. So we would say then, uh, and we do say this as believers, that when you have children as a, as a believer, It is your responsibility to teach your children about and to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a responsibility for that. For those that you know, your friends, you have a responsibility to God for them to give them this message. It is a ministry that we all share in together and individually. When we talk about how we get along with each other, a large part of that is not only that God has commanded that, but that goes a long way in lending credibility to what the message, so that the message, so that the ministry of reconciliation can go forward. We want to remove any obstacles that are in the way. The word ministry is where the word uh, where we get uh, uh, is the word di- diakonia. It means the rendering or assistance or help by performing certain duties. It's, of, it's usually of a humble or menial nature. It includes mundane activities such as waiting on tables or caring for household needs, activities without apparent dignity. That's the word that's used for ministry of reconciliation. Since the service that's associated with that word necessarily involved dependence, submission, and constraints of time and freedom because you think about it we we do this ministry because we are dependent upon God we have submitted to God and his word and it cons- it puts constraints on the way we use our time in other words it, it doesn't mean that we are enslaved every moment of the day but we we must look at our time and understand the way that we use our time in light of this ministry this is not something we can just kind of put in the back of our mind and just forget about it for a while. It must always be really presently in, in the front of our mind. We must always be conscious of this. Being conscious of this all the time is not a heavy burden. It is not just one more thing I have to think about. It's not that. It's, it's kind of like this. If you are married, that's always something about you that you wherever you go, that's that's how you think. Because you're married. No matter what decisions come your way you're married you make decisions based on the fact that you're married how is it going to affect your partner should I even ask my other partner you know, my partners all those things kind of go into that the way you respond to situations should be determined by the fact that you are married and so it's not another thing you have to think about it's just you just kind of you're, you you absorb it it's a part of who you are and we're able to do that as human beings clearly as a Christian. This is one of those things. We we are absorbed into this Christianity thing. I am reconciled to God. I am adopted by him into his family. I am a Christian. Again, that is my identity. So wherever I go, I I carry that with me. I I went to an FBI class once on gangs when I was a chaplain uh, at the jail and read several books on gangs, uh, both secular and Christian, uh, trying to dissect, you know, why people get in the gangs and all the various aspects of it. And there's some, there's some pretty large gangs throughout our country. Uh, the largest gang I do believe still is in Chicago uh, that has anywhere from fifty to 70,000 members. It's a large gang. Um, but when it comes to that, many times when, I mean, maybe always, when, it, when a teenager, because it's usually teenagers, sometimes younger, when they join a gang, you know, they begin to act differently and they even wear different clothes. It may just be the color of the gang. But wherever they go now, that's what they wear. Why? Because they're a member of the gang. They're going to act in a certain way. They're going to associate with certain people. There are certain people they're not going to associate with. Why? Because that's not their identity any longer. Their identity now has been shaped by the gang. it's, It's an automatic thing. They're not complaining about that. This is how it is. They will even engage in things they don't even want to do because they're a part of the gang. They may not want to go to war with some other gang. They may not want to show up at a certain place at a certain time because there's going to be a big fight. They don't want to do that, but you're part of the gang. You're loyal to the gang. This is how it is. So this idea then with with the family of God is this is our identity, and it is to be all-consuming. And so, again, this ministry that's been given to us is one that's not only important, but we need to recognize I guess you would say, in a sense, the restraints that are put on us and what is required. Now, in the society that Paul is writing to, this Greek society, pagan Greeks regarded this kind of service, this kind of ministry, as degrading and dishonorable. Service for the public good was honored, but voluntarily, giving of yourself in service of your fellow man was alien to Greek thought. This is what they said their highest goal was. The highest goal before a man was the development of his own personality. Sounds pretty familiar. Strikingly familiar. Because we live in a culture that is focused on what? Self-actualization. Self-fulfillment. We find very little value in serving others unless it helps your self-actualization. Unless it helps your self-fulfillment. You, will, you may begin to engage in serving others if it, makes, if it builds your reputation. If it makes you, uh, maybe it'll bring a greater dollar value to your salary, to what you can get because more people like you. Everything you do is calculated. We know that about politicians, we've that about many celebrities, that what they do, it's calculated. Maybe that's why they try so hard to tell us that what they're, when they're working for charity, it really is from the bottom of their heart. You know, and that's why we need to save the fire ant, or whatever happens to be. You know, they're trying to convince us this is the thing. All right, but all, but, but that's, that's the idea here. And so you, you hear that repeated in different ways. People, you know, individuals who are teaching in schools from the time that you have your kid kindergarten on up. You know, the teachers at times talk about helping individuals find themselves, find the real them. You know, now when you get kindergartners, they're not lost. They know who they are. You know, you have to teach them to lose themselves. You know, because most little kids, they identify themselves with their family. There's mom and dad, and, and they know where they belong, and they're pretty secure. Uh, and, but, but, you know, this is going on in our society, and you look at the self-help section uh, of most bookstores, or maybe you go on Amazon and cruise their self-help titles, the bottom line is there's a ton of titles all geared towards this idea. And there are even those who have made a, a business out of this when it comes to giving what we might call religious or Christian lectures. That's just another way of talking about self-actualization. And you hear both those who say they're believers and even non-believers trying to use the person of Christ as being a great instrument in helping an individual self-actualize. That Jesus is all about that. That Jesus is all about giving you the freedom to be who you are. Just remember that Jesus is not about being who you are. That's the problem is who you are. If he allows you to remain as who you are, you die and go to hell, no matter what you're doing. He has come to save us, to redeem us, to purchase us out of the marketplace of sin, because that's where all of us are. No matter how you're living, that's still the world you're in. And he's come to make us different. He's come to make us like himself. So this idea that the world is constantly trying to throw out there, that Jesus is, you know, the more loving, kind, whatever they happen to be saying, is just deception, and people buy into this. People who may mean well. People who would just rather not fight with others. And you don't have to to be contentious to want to stand firm on doctrine, but whether you're contentious or not, as believers, we need to stand on true doctrine, on what the Scriptures teach us about who Jesus is, and not allow the world, which is constantly trying to change Jesus into what they want him to be, And so again, we have the ministry of reconciliation. And the ministry of reconciliation is to give the message that God has given us. We don't alter that message in any way. We do try to find ways to better explain that message, but we're not trying to make the message more palatable to anybody. We are trying to help them to understand it better, maybe how it applies to them more personally, but we're not trying to change it. Remember that as we do all these things, we're doing so because sin has broken the relationship that man has with God. We know that sin severs relationships with others as well. Broken relationships, it's the epidemic of our day. It's been the epidemic for a long time. Sin alienates family members. It separates friends. It divides churches. It destroys marriages. Sin creates mistrust, jealousy, jealousy hatred, greed, all of which devastate relationships. Only Christ has the remedy for the disastrous effect of sin on human relationships. I was in Starbucks once, surprising, and I was sitting there reading and there was a guy that I had seen in there a great deal, really for a couple of years, owned his own business. Uh, He was in there many mornings writing in some journal, which I think was for business and planning and whatever else he was doing. And so one day he just kind of came over to me, and he, and he said, you uh, know, kind of said, excuse me, and told me his name. He said, aren't you a pastor or something like that? <laughs> I, said, I said, yes, I am. And, and he said, well, I, I want to talk to you. And there was, I guess, some difficulty in his relationship with his wife. And so he began to explain to me a little bit of the situation, and I, and I began to, you know, try to give some advice. And, and, you know, some things that I, that, I, that I was just hearing from what he said. And I could tell that he just seemed to have a hard time hearing what I was saying. And so I, I stopped short and I said, look, I said, you have to understand something. I said, I'm coming from a completely different worldview than you are. My view of what a man is to be in a marriage relationship and my view of what a marriage relationship is And my view of what it means to be honest and kind of with it. I said, this is going to be very different from yours. And it's all based on what I believe that the Bible says. And we are to conform every aspect of our life to what the Bible says. So if you don't want to do that, I'm not mad at you. But there's not really a whole lot for us to talk about. Because that's where I'm coming from. So I'm not going to give you, you know, six things you can do better, uh, you know, to make your wife happy. I said, and based on what you've told me. I could give you a list of six things, but the happiness won't last long because there's some foundational problems which you're not going to see or even agree with what I'm saying. He says, what would the foundational thing be? I said, well, do you really want to know? He said, yeah. I said, well, from what you've said, it sounds like you have some control issues. I was right. He did not like that. And so but he was very nice, and we've never spoken again. <laughs> we say hi when we see each other, but he's, but he's not interested. And so we need to recognize that that you know, even though I would love to help him and, his, and I would love for his marriage to be better the, men, the, the message of reconciliation is what is key, and that is foundational to there being a lasting help for his marriage. Everything else will be a band-Aid. I wasn't trying to be mean. I was willing to intercede a little bit, but I could see that it was going to fall short quickly. And that really wasn't helpful. And that's not what he wanted. He really, and a lot of people who go into marriage counseling, this is what they want. They want really good, solid advice that helps them come out on top. That's how it is. You know, They may, not want, they may be willing to give up a few things, but not everything. And so we need to remember that. So when you have family members, you have friends who are seeking your advice, yes, you want to give them biblical advice, but what you've got to keep in your mind is this. If they don't know Christ, that is the need. That's not a narrow-minded approach. It is a focused approach, absolutely. It is a focused approach. They're having trouble with their kids. Well, this is not just helping to become, you know, better disciplinarians and more loving. Those are good things, but in the end, they need Christ, and all of us have that ministry. That is not where you give them some advice and say, okay, now, you guys, you need some more help, and let me call Bob, and I'm willing to come talk to them. You have that. In fact, in many cases, coming from you would be more effective than coming from me. They know you. They trust you. Of course, we all know there's a risk with that. You know what the risk is? The risk is, is they won't just reject the message. They may reject you. They may not walk off on a storm, but your relationship may, may be damaged a little bit. They're, you're not going to be as close. They're not going to be whatever the case may happen to be. It's just, it's, there's going to be some distance. But that's because of Christ. And we need to expect that. And we need to be willing to take that risk with those that we love. We must. If we don't, then we don't love them. Again, we are his ambassadors. We are to take the message of reconciliation to a broken and divided world. We need to, we need to urge reconciliation first with God, then with each other. That's why when, whenever anyone comes to you for marriage advice, and you know, a lot of people who have a friend come to them, remember the only person you can help is the one you're talking to. You can't help or change the one that you're not talking to. And what is that person's number one need? Christ. So it makes it easy. Right? Because the only person you can help change is them. And the sin is so deep, you can't help them to change. Christ can. We need to remember that God's messengers, that's us, of peace, God's messengers harbor enmity toward each other. As believers, we sometimes have that difficulty. It's a travesty for you and I to be the ones who carry the message of love, and yet our hearts are filled with hatred for others. If there is someone whom you refuse to forgive, then your message of reconciliation is hypocrisy. The evidence that you are a disciple of Jesus is that you love your fellow Christian. We need to remember that. It's it's not just having your doctrine right. The bottom line is this. If I don't love Robert, the guy sitting right there, if I don't love him, It may be doubtful that I know Christ. That is something that you can see. That is a test, if you would, of my genuine conversion to Jesus Christ. It is the evidence that I am the disciple of Jesus. If I don't love Sean, then you have the right to doubt that I truly love Christ. That is the evidence that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we can use that for anyone in your family, anyone in the church, anyone anywhere. That's the command of God. That is the standard that he has set. The effect of the cross, at least in this sphere of thought that Paul is giving us here, again was on man and not on God. The effect of the cross changed not the heart of God, but the heart of man. It's true that God had to be propitiated or satisfied, but it was man who needed to be reconciled, not God. It is is against everything that Paul wrote to think of Jesus Christ pacifying an angry God. And that is how sometimes the unbelieving world sees the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, God was angry, and so Jesus died to make him happy. That's not what took place. Or to think somehow that God's wrath was turned into love. When you read 1 John 4:8, where it says that God is love, the verb there is in the present tense, which means God is continually love. There's never a time in eternity that God was not love. So his wrath was not turned to love. God's judgment was not turned to mercy. God judged sin. God is merciful. He is both. All of God's attributes are eternal. All of God's attributes are immutable. It means they don't change. Again, because of something which Jesus did. Okay, okay. God's wrath is not turned to sin. God is a wrathful God. He is going to judge sin, but he is also eternally loved. Paul shows here that it was man's sin which was turned to penitence, that man's rebellion was turned to surrender, that man's enmity which was turned to love by the sacrificial love of Christ upon the cross. It cost uh, that cross to make the change in the heart of men. So we need to recognize that all the provisions for this friendly relation between God and the offending man find their initiation and provision in God and are under his direction and it involves an active response on man. Verse 19 says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Again, going into the details of what God has done for us, when he reconciled to the world to himself, what did that mean? That meant that he did not count our trespasses against us. That is important. The word trespass that's used there, does the expanded definition has to do with a willful sinning, where we are purposely violating the command of God. The Bible does continually make it clear that when we sin. That we always sin willfully. And that we are 100% responsible for our sin. Regardless of what psychology says, no matter how you were raised, no matter what trauma you've been through, which may explain why you feel the way that you do about certain things, it may explain the way that you feel emotionally throughout the day. God never allows that to be used as an excuse for why you and I do what we do. We are held responsible. Even if we may feel overwhelmed, the bottom line is God holds us responsible. And, that, and, and we have, so no matter how we view the world, no matter how we view our sin, no matter how we view other people, we need to remember that. That's why, again, we need the message of what? Reconciliation. It's not a message that is needed by some people and not others. The ministry of reconciliation is not telling people to make peace with God, but telling them that God has made peace with the world. Again, at the bottom, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. We are not called to make peace with God. That is God's work. The method, method of reconciliation is reckoning, where it says God, again, did not count their trespasses against them. Again, in one of the commentaries, Hughes says this, God's mercy cannot be vindicated by injustice. Not counting trespasses is one result of reconciliation. Not imputing their trespasses, not putting them on their account. Yes, the trespasses are imputed, however, not to the sinner, but to Christ. The sinner's substitutionary, sufficient sacrifice. The Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. The idea is that God's reconciliation of sinful men, those who receive the reconciliation by grace through faith, results in the canceling of the debt they owe God because of their trespass. Not counting one's trespass is at the same time a picture of God's forgiveness. Again, remember what I told you, that transgression is not the word that's used here. It's the word trespass. Again, it's a false step out of the appointed way. It is a trespass on forbidden ground. In fact, in, uh, there's a book or a set of books called Vincent's uh, Word Studies. He's, he was a Greek scholar And he did detailed work on various New Testament words. And he talks about the verb that is used here for trespass. And he says this. It is often used of intentional falling, as of throwing oneself on an enemy. And this is the prevailing sense in biblical Greek. It indicates reckless and willful sin. It does not, therefore, imply uh, an excuse. It is a conscious violation of right involving guilt and occurs, therefore, in connection with the mention of forgiveness. It is kind of like the dash cam video that I saw that came out of China. There's many like this. There's a man stopped at a stoplight. He's waiting for people to go across the street, and there's this old Chinese lady, and she stops in front of his vehicle. She throws her cane down, looks around, and she jumps on his windshield and falls to the ground and starts screaming that he hit her. He gets, gets out to see what's going on. Of course, she's screaming in pain, but she wants money. And then he proclaimed he's able to tell her that he has a dash cam video, and he recorded the entire thing. She jumped up, grabbed her cane, swung it at him, and said something in Chinese, which I'm sure we couldn't repeat, um, and went on her way. The idea is that was willful. She did that purposely. She was violating what was Right? And again, this is what God has done for us. He knows why we have sinned. He understands our sin. He understands the motivation behind it. And so therefore, he has reconciled us to himself. This glorious work that he has done for us and in us, that is the message that we're going to bring. So we're going to talk more about that and how we do that next week, but that is the ministry, that is the service That God has given to you and me. We are to serve others. From God's point of view, that's what we're doing. We are serving mankind. We are doing what needs to be done. In the same way that you go to someone's house who's sick, and you do their dishes, and you cut their grass, and you do all these things. You do what needs to be done because it's what is most helpful. This is what this is so we need to begin to ask the Lord to help us to think in these terms. Maybe, in a sense, ask for God to give us a sense of this burden or this responsibility. Not that it weighs you down, but it needs to become a part of your conscious, everyday thinking. That you are the carrier, you are the one, as I said earlier on before, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God has given us this great privilege to be the ones who declare this message and this good news to others. And it's a responsibility that we must take seriously. And I'll end with this just because I think it's very important. When it comes to your kids and to your grandkids, you have the ministry of reconciliation. If not you, who? Who will love them enough to tell them that? It should be you. I don't know anybody who will love them more than you do. And that should be in the center of our prayers and on the on on the tip of our tongue when when we raise our children and seek to influence our grandchildren. We want them to get that. I want them to see that Papa loves the Lord because the Lord loved Papa first. I want them to see that Papa loves the Lord because God has changed his life and Papa has faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. I want them to know that Papa, hopefully, is kind and gracious because God has transformed him. That Papa is going to heaven because of what Christ has done. And Papa wants to see them in heaven. Not because they're good, because they cannot be good enough. Because they love Jesus. And I want to give them and explain as many times as I have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a great gift we can give to those that we love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your kindness, grace, and love. We thank you, Father, for those who were fulfilling the ministry of reconciliation by sharing with us the gospel, by living out before us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for those who did not lose patience but probably gave us the gospel many times over and sought to find ways to explain the gospel. Father, we pray that as we conclude our worship of you this morning that we will end thanking you for all that you've done for us, for reconciling us to yourself. And ask, Lord, now that you would begin to place upon us a, a conscious understanding of our responsibility to serve others through the ministry of reconciliation, to declare to them the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much, Father, for your graciousness in our lives. and We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.